Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. On today's episode, I am joined by Guy and Ike Eastman. These accomplished brothers come from a deep hunting heritage and tell the story of how the third generation Eastman's Publishing Incorporated came to be. We also discuss the transition from just finding success to trophy hunting and why trophy hunting is a good thing from a conservation standpoint. Western hunting from past to present, and how to find success in the West today. The podcast is brought to you by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app is your premier GPS hunting app that turns your phone into a working GPS. By using the offline feature, you can use your downloaded maps in the field without service in airplane mode to conserve battery and always know where you are. If you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app for yourself, head over to onyxmaps.com and use the coupon code EMW to save 20%. Tethered is a company that is founded on the principles of educating the hunting community on saddle hunting while creating the most innovative, lightweight, safe products for saddle hunting. They have mobile hunting gear options for all types of hunters and continue to push the envelope. To learn more about Tethered and saddle hunting, head over to tetherednation.com. Maven is building the highest quality optics at half of the price of their competitors through their direct-to-consumer business model. They just want to create the best optics for the job, period. Their products are back with a lifetime no-fault warranty and an incredible customer experience. I'm using the B2 9x44 9 by 45 binoculars in all my Western hunts. It is a low light monster that allows you to see through the binos longer than you can with your naked eye. You can use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order at mavenbuilt.com. The Spartan Forge Outfitter utilizes years of military background and machine learning to pull from millions of data points to accurately predict deer movement, including GPS data, 30 years of weather, academic and state research. They are using science rather than someone's opinion to figure out the movement for your specific hunting area so that you can make sure you're hunting on the best days. The Outfitter is available online and will become an app soon. The price will probably increase at that point. So if you buy it now, you're locked into that lower rate for good. You can use the code East Meets West to save 25% off of the Outfitter at SpartanForge.ai. On this week's Mountain Buck Story of the Week, or otherwise known as Mountain Buck Monday over on social media, I have a story from Matthew Schneider. And Matthew had said, I started getting pictures of this deer the third week of October in the Kentucky Big Woods. I knew the area well, so I started hunting with a bow on the fringes of doe bedding. Each week I would scout, then hunt that weekend on sign that I found. Then the modern rifle season came in along with the rut. I ended up totaling 11 days of hunting and rifle season alone. On the second to the last day of rifle season, I was able to connect with the old 30-30 on this 150-inch green score 10-point. And once again, some awesome bucks coming through and a really cool story from Matthew Schneider. I mean, 
going after it, 11 days of hunting and rifle season, plus all of the scouting, finding that hot sign, it all paid off for him. Uh, a lot of lessons to be learned from that story. So head over to East Meets West Hunt on Instagram and East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook to check out the photos of this deer that Matthew is chasing. So on today's episode, uh, like I said, I am joined by Guy and Ike Eastman, and this is a really cool story. It's It's been a goal of mine to be able to talk to these guys as they're legends in the, the hunting space and, and the outdoor media space as well. So to be able to talk to them was an honor, and I hope everyone gets some enjoyment out of this episode and has a great rest of your week. All right, we're live. Guy and Ike Eastman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's great for, to be talking to the both of you. I mean, it's through the the virtual world here as as we seem to live in now. And and uh, Ike, you were just talking about you were at your first show in quite a while. Yeah, I was I was just in Dallas uh, first time since Shot Show last year, so eighteen months almost. Um, <clears throat> And it's, it's been, it, it was really nice to be in a room with 2,900 other people and three people wearing a mask and that's it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and no one died. And, uh, so it was, it was, it was really good to have uh, human interaction again. And it, 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 you could tell, you know, the first day, everybody's kind of nervous about touching and handshaking and doing the whole thing. And by, by, uh, day two, probably after the cocktail party that, that night, <laughs> everybody was back to normal and, and lots of energy. And, and you could tell it just, it energizes you when you're face to face, uh, without a computer screen in between you. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty nice. It, it felt weird this winter, not going to any shows or anything. I felt, well, the last one I think I was at was in Harrisburg. The one we were talking about before we started recording back in 2020 right. and then right after that's when everything kind of went to hell for a little bit and uh yeah. and it's i got four events coming up here through this through the next five weeks and it's nice to see people again that's for sure it is it is actually shake hands and have a beer and yep and laugh and you know yeah it's it's a refreshing cool well, again, I'm glad to have you guys on the show here. I would love to just start out. Uh, you guys don't really need a whole lot of introduction, but if you would mind going through, we'll start with you, Ike, and kind of giving a little background on you specifically and yourself, and then uh, we'll transition over to Guy. Okay. Um, Ike Eastman, and uh, I'm the president and CEO of Eastman's Publishing, um, also the janitor and the maintenance guy, and I don't know. I wear about twenty-seven hats. Uh, try not to be the the. Uh, try not to be the idiot, but that sometimes comes across. Um, been with the company full time. I mean, obviously, this company is a family-owned. My parents started it, and so uh, I've been with the company full time uh, since two thousand three. Before that, I was a, a financial banker for a big bank out here, and uh, was on a pretty good career path, and. Uh, uh, my parents called up and said, "Listen, we we need some we need somebody that has financial savvy and and can work with the banks and do all the things you know on the operating side. Uh, it's just getting too big for for what they had." And so I came back and yeah, bought it. We bought it. Guy and I bought it from our parents in 2008, 
and uh, we've been running it ever since. It's changed a lot. You know, there's things we were just talking about COVID. You know, there's things that you have to do and change and pivot, and uh, we were able to do that early and quickly. And it's been it's been really good. The transition's been really good. We got a great team around us that is really knowledgeable, and they are unbelievably savvy and ethical. You know, it's just it's been fun and creative. So did, that's me in a nutshell. Did you um when you were in the financial role? Did you live in Wyoming still? Yep, I told myself here. I'm the I'm the weird kid. I told myself when when uh, my wife and I graduated college, we were we were weighing our options where we we're going to go. Went to school in the University of Wyoming, and uh, we decided, you know what? I love Wyoming, and we're going to do what it takes to live here. And that was living on rice and beans, working as a, a management trainee for this bank, making you know twenty thousand dollars a year. And, uh, you know, obviously quickly grew from there, but, um, yeah, I've never lived anywhere else besides Wyoming. I, I, I didn't, you know, it's in this day and age, I can't imagine it. And I really can't imagine it, you know, in the current environment, I, you know, I was just visiting, I was in Nashville for a little while and then Texas and I, even those States as conservative as they are, I got off the plane this afternoon, I looked at my wife and said, welcome to free America again. I mean, it is it is nice to live in Wyoming and never have to wear a mask. And, you don't, you know, you 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 don't have to worry about crazy people. And, you know, walk downtown Dallas, Texas last night from dinner in the dark. And I picked myself. I, I will. I forgot. This isn't the smartest thing we could be doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't have to worry about that stuff here. Yeah, no, that that's that's pretty nice. I mean, I live in the middle of nowhere here in Pennsylvania as well, in a very small town. And but the only thing is, our we have a little bit of a different. Um, the government here is a little bit different than that you guys have it. And even I work in manufacturing full time, and we have to wear masks. And like today, it was Ooh. eighty-five degrees, and all day, Ooh. it's absolutely. Ugh terrible but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking that, forward to we can uh, our company's just even behind the the cdc and the everything else are even worse so it's 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 been terrible to ugh, to be yeah, straight no, so um so what about you guy i'd like to hear a little bit of a background on you uh, i'm the actually the older brother so i uh started Grew up hunting and fishing, of course, growing up in Wyoming. And I started filming, helping film with my grandfather back in the 80s when I was a kid. And then went to college engineering school back east. Came back out west, did engineering for a while, and then came back to the company, you know, somewhat like Ike uh, was explaining. And just hit the ground running with the business and helping grow the business. And then shortly after... I got here, Ike came on. So okay. that's in a nutshell, <laughs> my life story all over the place. But, uh, <laughs> you know, grew up hunting fishing and that's, you know, where my heart's been my whole life. So, yeah. You know what we should have done? We should have done each other's because he's, he's being too humble. He, he <laughs> got the cool opportunity um, as a teenager to spend almost, I would say every summer since you were 14 when you, wasn't that guy? pretty much with grandpa. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, he spent all summer traveling with my grandpa, learning how to film with him and listening to stories and sucking in second hand smoke and <laughs> just, <laughs> well, fishing and hunting and, and uh, you know, learning how to be a man with, with uh, a, a, a true pioneer. So something that I, I know I wish I would have had that opportunity. Of course, by the time I was that age, grandpa was uh, almost, well, he was two years, three years from dying. So um, yeah, it's, I think it's really cool that guy got that opportunity and has been able to, to continue it and utilize it for through his career. And, and, you know, it's always fun to listen to him tell stories that I've never even heard of grandpa Gordon in the sixties doing some crazy thing in British Columbia or Alaska or wherever. Yeah. So. No. So what difference in age between the two of you? There? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. I think almost there's seven six, years. Yeah, it's almost seven years. I mean, you look the same yeah. age, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm almost yeah. 50. Yeah, I, I just turned 44 on Saturday. So. <laughs> well, it seems like you guys are hard charging just as much as you were when you're younger. Maybe uh, you don't feel that way, but it, it seems like that from the outside, at least. You don't, you don't, you don't see me get out of bed in the morning, <laughs> grunting <laughs> yeah, and groaning, and my knees popping, and <laughs> that's no lie. My my wife told me just Saturday. I think she'd be funny, but she goes, you know, I think it's about time that I turn you in for two twenty-two year olds because this is not <laughs> you're, you're getting too old. <laughs> that's funny. So, guy, what was that like? Uh, you know, growing up on, you know, with your grandfather and kind of learning from that, that experience. And that's, that's one of the things I really want to talk about here is kind of just the, the evolution of the, well, Eastman name and brand and everything else. Uh, well, yeah, at the time I took it for granted completely. I didn't think anything of it. It was just a job to me, you know, but you know, hearing the stories and whatnot, and then kind of one of those deals that, you know, it's, you miss it. And you realize it when it's gone, you know, after he died, you know, you hear all those stories like, oh, yeah, some of them I heard so many times over and over that, you know, typical 16, 17 year old, I'm glazed, you know, checking out on him half the time. And then, <laughs> then he died and it was all gone. While I was in college. And then I, you know, you wish you would have recorded some of them, wrote them down, you know, saved them somehow, some way, somehow. But as a stupid 17 year old, you thought you'd just remember him forever. So a lot of that's was kind of lost, unfortunately, when, when he died. But, uh, you know, I, I really regret taking it so much for granted as I did. Yeah. It was very interesting. I mean, some of the stories and people he knew and, you know, a lot of those guys are, are dead, but they would come by to visit him, you know, in this, in the summer when I was there and cause they had, you know, come to Yellowstone, you know, pioneers in the hunting industry, like, uh, you know, Mr. Ruger and, and Roy Weatherby and, you know, these guys that they all kind of grew up, to, you know, he was friends with Jack O'Connor, my grandfather was, and, and, you know, so they had a lot of, he had a lot of connections that I just thought, oh, these are just a bunch of old guys that like to go to hunting camp and, and whatever, you know, and, and really, I, I really did take a lot of that for granted. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and like, yeah, you said at that age, you kind of, it's, it's hard to take everything in when you're 16, 17, 18 years old. And, and I can, I can understand how you would kind of take that for granted. And plus just growing up with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the, it's kind of the norm or was the norm for Ike and I, you know, growing up, but, uh, you know, we didn't realize how unique it was till later, I'm sure. I remember, I think it was a few years ago, I remember watching something on uh, your guys' YouTube channel. It was kind of like the story in some of the first film that, that your grandpa did. And up was it the Northwest Territories, maybe? Probably, yeah. Is that, was, that, was that some of the first hunting film to ever take place? I mean, those cameras looked uh, looked interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that was, he started in Alaska. Okay. Is where he started. He guided up there um for a couple of years and he got a smaller camera, of course film camera, wind up 8 millimeter, and he would just film his clients as he was hunting and it just kind of grew from there, you know, and that was really really premature to what we know now. We're talking I think he started filming that stuff in 1956 i think so it was pretty pretty remedial at that point but there was none of it around so you know you have hunting footage that's really unique wow let's let's watch that so people would come from all over of course there was no tv there was no internet there was nothing yeah you you had to show it in a gymnasium on a projector and so that's kind of what his shtick was is he go it developed into where you'd go film these adventures, build a film out of it, and then go to uh, auditoriums and movie theaters and and present this movie of these hunt this hunting adventure up north. Most of these animals people had never seen. Yeah. You know, doll sheep and you know, caribou and brown bears and you know, all this stuff was really exotic to you know, to a 1956 audience. Now it's no big deal, but it was much different than back then. Yeah. And there's no, uh, uh, there was no Adobe premiere for editing or anything else, you know, <laughs> I'm sure. No, <laughs> no. And, and his editing was very remedial at first. And then he, cause we grew up in Jackson hole and the Disney family has a, had a place there. And so he kind of got connected with them and then he ended up working for Disney for a few years in Hollywood so he went out there and that's where he really learned how to make films before that it was just him filming some clients and slapping together you know literally with scotch tape you literally cut the film and tape it together you know very very remedial but once he went for you know four or five years out to hollywood and worked for disney then he knew how to do all the editing all the sound mixing i mean it just really refined what he was able to do and just took it to a, a whole nother level. Yeah. And, and then did, did your dad kind of grow up going along on some of those adventures and everything? Yeah, he did. He did on some of them. He's older. My dad's the oldest of the three boys and his brother spent a lot of time, uh, on those adventures, but my dad was uh, in Vietnam in the war, uh, there when a lot of that happened. You know, uh, by the time that really got rolling in the uh, late sixties. Okay, interesting. So, but he grew up doing it as as well. My my dad did just a different portion, but most of the stuff 
that people see now uh, of, of Gordon's films uh, was done when my father was, was already an adult. Okay. You know, and left Late sixties, early seventies. Do you still, yeah. do you still have some of that old film? We oh do. yeah. In fact, we, uh, <clears throat> we, we've put a plan together to re to reenact it or not reenact it to, uh, to uh, resurrect it, let's say. And uh, of course, you know, it's old film. And so it's, it's getting deteriorated every year. And, and um, you know, there's, of course there's family dynamics because there's two brothers and a sister that are involved um, with my dad. And so there's all that, but it's hopefully we have the ability uh, if nothing else, hopefully we have the ability to, to uh, put it in an archive uh, and keep it for a long time. Um, I will tell you a cool thing that we did that guy and I were able to do um, is we went to Northwest territories. So my grandpa went to the Northwest territories in 19, was it 1962? Okay. Is that what it says on the, 63, I think 63. So we were able to go up to that same place. And it was just a happenstance. Actually, the area had been owned by the same family for a very long time and they'd sold it and they sold it. And the gal that's running it, uh, it's called canal outfitters. Now, um, she just happened to have an uh, open slot for a caribou and an open slot for, for sheep. And so we were able to go up there and kind of retrace uh, his steps. In fact, it, it, it didn't do this on purpose, but it, it worked out. Um, we were guy shot the, his sheep on the same exact mountain from the same camp, uh, almost 50 years, exactly 50 years opposite. And uh, it was an unbelievable experience. And, and to be able to, you know, you go into the little museum there in, uh, in uh, uh, more Norman Wells, the little tiny building, shack of a building. It's got some photos and some archive stuff from the, from the natives and all that stuff. And you go in there and there's photos of Grandpa Gordon and sheep and him with caribou and all this stuff. And they didn't even know who he was. In fact, the curator come over and said, oh, because we had a camera and stuff. She goes, oh, what are you guys doing? And we started talking. She goes, we had no idea who that was. We just knew they were old photos. Really? So it was kind of fun. Yeah, we were able to get them, give them a, a tab yeah. at the bottom of you know, Gordon Eastman 1963 kind of thing. Oh, that's pretty crazy. Um, what? So how did, that, how did that kind of transition into you guys getting into – filming and everything and and you know the the beginning of eastman's i know that was before you guys but like how how did that kind of come to be well i'll give you the elevator spiel <laughs> so grandpa was doing all that stuff and and filming stuff and then he got into theatricals and walt disney in the 60s and 70s <clears throat> and they were actually you know he was building films that were in theaters and uh and then things kind of went a downturn and he changed uh his, uh, he was a really creative guy. And so he had a tendency to be a little bit ADD and, uh, he changed what he was doing and, and, uh, that stuff kind of just got sat aside until the early eighties when the VHS, uh, world started. And for those that don't know in your audience, there used to be this thing called a VHS tape and you actually <laughs> had to put it into a tape and it hooked to your TV and you would watch a movie 
and there would be stickers on the on the tape that says be kind and rewind because it took you 15 or 20 minutes to rewind them every day or every time you want to watch them and uh they we would go to these stores and these stores would have you know hundreds of titles of of movies and you go in and pick a movie and you take it home and the family movie night, you know, you didn't have to go to the theater. We could take this into our own home and eat our own popcorn. And by gosh, we could even drink beer if we wanted to. And, and uh, so this happened in the, in the early eighties and my uncle and my, uh, my grandfather were, they were doing something, probably filming deer or something on the winter engine. And, and uh, my uncle's like, we should take all those old films put them into VHSs and sell them to all these rental stores because, you know, a movie used to cost 150, 200 bucks to, for a video store, buy two, buy a $200 video and then rent it out for five bucks and try and recoup their cost. And so they're like, oh, yeah, sure, let's try that. And so they started doing it. And my dad who came back from Vietnam and uh, he was an outfitter for a number of years and then started a construction business because Jackson was all, all of a sudden it became the place to live and the movie stars were moving in there. And so he started a construction business and was building houses. Um, Guy and I were young and uh, the housing market popped. And in Jackson, of course, it's a vacation place. So it's the first one to feel the housing market bubble pop. And so he went, um, my dad went broke. And so he transitioned into helping my grandfather and my uncle and sell those videos all over the country. In fact, I bet I would be willing to bet if my dad was sitting right here, he'd ask you what town you're from and I'll bet you money he's been there because he's been to every video store in Pennsylvania. Really? Every one of them. Yes. (laughs) He's like a, it's, it's sad. He'll, He'll do things like, do they still have that cafe on the other side of the tracks of that place? That was a really good place to eat. Uh, no, 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 that hasn't, that hasn't been there since 1991, yeah. <laughs> but he traveled. So he traveled all over the place, all over the country selling these. And he was sitting actually at the Harrisburg show, which you and I were talking about a few minutes ago. And, uh, he was sitting at that show selling, peddling these videos. And these guys would come up to the booth and go, you have Western stuff like elk and deer. Yeah. We have some elk and some a video on deer and new one just came out on, on uh, Rocky mountain mule deer. Well, oh, man, I really want to hunt out there. And he, he got this idea. He was going to build pam- a pamphlet, literally just a pamphlet, three fold pamphlet with some information on how to come out West hunting. And he would hand them out. If you buy a video, I'll give you my, my honey, how to hunt out West pamphlet free kind of thing. And it just grew from there and it grew from pamphlet to a journal that was, it was on newspaper print, had a nice cover on it, but newspaper print. And it went all the way for, and this is 1987 when we started doing that. And then it just grew faster and faster. Of course, movie theaters, the video stores kind of started trailing off. Uh, I, I heard this weekend though, there's still one blockbuster. Did you guys know that? I, I saw that. It's, it's in Oregon. Article. Yeah. I just met the guy that owns it. And there's people that fly. He goes weekly. I'll have 10 or 15 people to fly from somewhere else in the world just to come rent a video, just rent a DVD, walk out the door and walk back in and, and return it because they don't have a DVD player even to play it on. They just want to be, have a blockbuster number. He'll get he'll get cards like gift cards. Somebody found a box of gift cards and he puts them up on the wall. Anyway, so 
so my dad started this journal and it just started growing and it kind of, it grew from 1987 till 1997 from zero to, you know, a, a really good magazine that had a good following. And then a guy came in and he and, and dad started the bow magazine. And then we started the, the TV show in 1999. Then that's when I was going to college. And so in 99, I, I was driving home uh, six hours one way every weekend to film all the intros because the magazine was based out of, out of Montana actually then. And I would film, film the intros in my parents' house for the, all the, the TV shows and the DVDs and all that stuff. And my wife and I drive back, go to school and come back. And, and uh, then, so it was becoming a powerhouse when it went on TV and the outdoor channel became a thing. Um, it was, a, you know, starting to be a, a big brand and that's when they bring it back to Wyoming and, uh, the, you know, they, they had guy working for him and it, and it, I wouldn't say exploded, but it got to be a synergy that needed a lot more talent. And so that's when they, they bring myself in and actually we have guy and I have a sister that's in between us. And, um, she did, she did the marketing for it for a number of years until she decided to be a stay at home mom. So there, I guess that's that's the elevator story of, of where we're at. And then, of course, we bought it from him in, in 2008 and started the whole digital side of our world, which is Tag Hub, which you're familiar with. Yep. Um, that Tag Hub. And we took a guy in, in the video crew, started an online series called Beyond the Grid. It's on YouTube and Waypoint and Amazon Prime and everywhere else that we can, that they'll let us put it, Facebook, yeah. <laughs> everywhere else they'll let, let us put the content um and uh yeah so it's grown significantly and and it's been a lot of fun and it's been a lot of blood sweat and tears uh but i heard this saying this weekend somebody actually told me this about their business goes oh yeah we were a over a 30-year overnight success yeah yeah meaning we worked our butts off for 30 years and people think you just fell into it yeah exactly i i heard um who was it i think Robbie Denning had said that on, I was, I'm, I'm doing this, this thing called the founder speaker series where a bunch of outdoor industry, um, owners and stuff are talking to younger entrepreneurs like myself and everything kind of given, um, some advice. And, and he had said, had said that he's like, you know, just, it's, it's taken a long time to, to work through kind of that stuff. And, and it, it's cool to see, like, as you were talking there, I'm thinking about how you've adapted through all the different, cause how much technology has come along and how people, you know, consume content is so differently than it was even 10 years ago. And it's definitely, it, it's got to be difficult. 12 months ago. <laughs> yeah, really. It, yeah. It's to, to be able to adapt to that and kind of just continue to, to do that. So that's, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. It's, it's been, it, it comes with a lot of challenges. I, I'm not going to lie. There's, I mean, we've, we have tried and failed probably a half a dozen digital magazines and it just, you know, until we've, until we figured out how people want to consume content, it's just, but it's trial and error. And when you're, when you're out here, uh, I would say living underneath the mushroom or the mushroom out here in Wyoming, you just try a lot of stuff and beat your head against the wall. It's a good thing. We got strong hands, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so transition a little bit to your guys' hunting background. So like when I watch 
you know, whether it's beyond the grid or your, the television show or anything else like that, it seems like you guys are, are definitely going after and, and killing some of the, the bigger trophy animals that are out there. And, but was that kind of where you had started just from learning that? Or was it, did you start kind of, you know, just, how do I want to put it? Getting some deer and elk and everything else under your belt and working towards it and kind of talk about that, kind of the backgrounds as you were, you know, becoming what, what you are today as far as hunters go. Um, Guy, do you want to start off with this? Sure. You know what? Of course, you didn't start. I didn't start out that way. I don't know a lot. A lot of people do, but I started out. I'm sure just like everybody else. My first bull elk was a spike, spike by two. I I told my buddies this when I was in high school. I said I'm not going to shoot a spike. I'm going to shoot a branch antler bull. And I got all excited and shot at a spike. But when I got up to it, it had two points on one side. So I said, Steve, because my buddy shot an actual spike out of the herd. So, but that was with a bow. So my first elk was with a bow, but it was a spike by two. So, I, you know, I started there and just, you know, hey, that's cool. Now I want to shoot a six-point bull. Oh, I got a little six-pointer. I ended up being a five-point. Then I want to get a real six-point bull, a little six-point bull. And then it just, you know, grows from there. I mean you know, it's probably a lot like golf or any sport. You just start out somewhere and each time you're just trying to beat, you know, get a little better, get a little better. And then pretty soon you turn around, you feel like a snob because you're turning, you know, passing up 320 bulls because you want a 350 or, or whatever the case is, you know, it just, it gets, it's the natural progression of a hunter. We talk about it a lot in this office. I mean, we have people in this office who start out just hunting for meat and that's cool. You know, kill cow, kill five cows every or five cows in five years. Then pretty soon, Oh, I'm going to try for a bull. Next thing you know, they're trying for a 350 bull. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just it's, it's a sport of constant because it is so can be so frustrating, so difficult, so draining. I think it just, lends itself to constant improvement and you're always trying to best yourself. And it may seem like a lot of people like they're trying to best each other. And that happens, you know, with hunting buddies a little bit too, but it's kind of a sport like running where you're trying to get your personal best. And it's, it's a, you know, it's more of that type of an endeavor for me anyway. And so it just kind of progressed pretty soon, you know, you're just uh, kind of hunting for, for big stuff and just having a good time doing it. But there is a uh, other side of that coin too. You're not afraid to eat a tag, you know, if yeah. you climb that ladder, right. When you're starting out, you're like, man, I didn't get an elk this year. I'm a total failure. <laughs> when you get up that ladder high enough, you're like, well, I didn't see the bull I wanted this year. No big deal. I'll shoot a cow for meat or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, there's a trade off there. And I think it's a natural progression. And then, you get older like me, you know, 50 or you get your grandkids or your kids involved and you kind of go back down that ladder and you start it all over again, you know? Yeah. And I've, I've talked to a lot of guys that say when their kids started hunting, it changed it forever. All of a sudden they, they reset that clock. They're not looking for the 350 anymore. They're back to let's get a spike. Yeah. Hey, Dad, it's a spike by two. Well, that's awesome, son. You're starting where I started, you know, and then they yeah. ride that wave up again. And then they get the next wave where my dad is, where they just kind of want to be in camp and 
hang out. They like the camaraderie, <laughs> but they don't like the work. Yep. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. They can walk up to a dead elk and go, I'll take a back strap, but boy, you guys got a mess to clean up here. Yeah. You know, they're, they like to be around it and have fun, but they don't want to get their hands in there and put a, a pack on their back anymore. And, you know, that's kind of where the sunset tour is. So I think it's a full spectrum, you know, you ride that whole curve. Yeah. Everybody's at a different spot on that hill, but, but, uh, you know, I think that's kind of talking to as many hunters as I do and generational hunters, it shows where the grandpa, the dad, the grandson, you know, that seems to be the natural progression of, of what we do. So, yeah, that's, that's, we've been in this, we've been doing this for 35 years. And so we've watched, you know, we've watched the people that are my dad's age when they were their, their thirties and forties when we were kids. And, you know, you walk up to a show in Sacramento or Harrisburg every year, you know, we're there for, we're Sacramento for uh, 32 years and you watch generations grow up through the hunting. And that's where, you know, there's a, there's a negative and right now there's a negative computation on trophy hunting because there's a lot, there's a lot of regular people that think that there's guys that just go out there shoot the biggest animal they can cut the head off and leave. They don't realize that the, that number one, that's illegal. That's worse than shooting an animal without a license. Number two, um, they don't understand that this is a progression that the guy that's, that's out there trying to better him or best himself, not necessarily best everybody else in the world, but best his, his personal best, you know, his personal best mile run is it's come from, him starting a spike by two and then, and then he'll get his kids involved and then we'll go back to spike by two. So we've watched it generationally and it's been really interesting. And, and there's a, like I said, there's a negative connotation with trophy hunting and it. There shouldn't be. It's just, a, it's, it's a, it's a way of keeping time on your run. That's like, that's all it is. Yeah, no. And it's funny what, what you'd said about like the way you described that, you, you know, your family and everything there's it's, reminds me exactly how my family is you know right now we go to our our hunting camp and my grandpa who is was extremely successful over the years he doesn't care to leave camp a whole lot he'll take a walk with his rifle up the the valley there and he gets something he'll call call me to come get it you know he'll call me to come get it and skin it and do all that and, and then even cutting it up and then uh and you know but it and when I was a kid, even, you know, he was out there all the time in archery season, you know, in tree stand throughout the entire season doing it. And, you know, he kind of went, now he's just happy to be there with everybody at camp and, and the same thing. And, you know, with, and myself, I remember when my dad took me out my first hunt, I was in a tree stand with him and a spike whitetail came out on this power line and, and, uh, I pulled out my scope and I said, dad, it's just a spike. I'm not, I'm not going to shoot it. He's like, no, you're shooting it. Like you need, you, you can't be picky. You've never killed anything. Like you need, you need to shoot. You gotta it. start somewhere, yeah. young man. Yeah. And you know, and then that kind of, you know, progressed up to the point, you know, now where I'm, you know, I have my own goals and where I'm trying to kill with whitetails, but I feel like I'm almost starting over when I started Western hunting six years ago. You know, my goal is just to kill what my branch antler bulls, what I wanted something that looked like an elk is kind of what I had in my mind. And then, you know, I, you know, I did that. Now I'm on to mule deer. This is my first year mule deer hunting. And I'm like, I just want something that looks like a mule deer. You know, it might be smaller than some of the whitetails that I'm shooting, but 
that doesn't matter to me because this is, you know, I'm getting into it and, you know, learning that kind of, that side of things. And, um, it's, it is kind of funny how that progression works. And, and, and I, I never, I, I could see the way the, the media kind of portrayed trophy hunting to make it seem, you know, well, it was just a lot of false information. Like you said, like people are going out there and cutting the heads off and, and everything, but it, it I totally agree. It's just the evolution of a, of a hunter and wanting to challenge themselves more. And, and I mean, there's also the side of it with taking older age class animals and what that's like, even for the, the, the herds and the, the population and the the dynamic there. I don't know if you guys want to talk a little bit about that. I'll let guy handle that. He does a, he does a very eloquently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as I've studied a lot of this, you know, been in this business a long time and really, you know, researching and, and talking to big game biologists and game of fish people all over the West, you know, when they manage herds, especially elk and sheep, uh, you know, where antelope where they're really micromanaging herd, those managers, they have to manage from two ends of that spectrum. They, they will manage the bull hunts or the buck hunts to manage the health of the herd and they'll manage the cow hunts for the size of the herd. You know what I mean? So if they want to reduce the size of that herd, they offer cow tags. You have to, you got to take down the number of factories that are producing widgets. If you want to keep the herd healthy, you got to take out some of the males. Any rancher will tell you that he doesn't have one bull for one cow. He's got one bull for 35 cows or whatever, and it needs to be an older class bull. So he gets the, you know, the older, healthy, mature bull is doing the breeding to the cows, which produces better offspring that can handle the weather better. They're born at the right time. You know, it's just the health of the herd and the reproduction of the herd. So with that, us as trophy hunters have, we're tasked with handling that in that side of the equation, the health of the herd. And part of that is taking the older age class animals because you want the younger bulls and bucks to come up and become mature. But you want to take some of those mature animals out, especially the overly mature. You know, those are the real targets, the bulls that aren't doing any breeding anymore, that are just consuming the habitat. And and those are the ones and might die this winter anyway. That's a waste on the resource. So you know, it needs to be managed from both sides. You, so you can't say, well, we don't need to kill the bulls. We don't need to kill the cows. Well, you need to manage all of it to have the healthiest herd possible it, with elk in particular. Very mm-hmm. important with elk, you know, because they eat a lot. That's an 800 pound animal. It consumes a lot of resource. And so the game and fish in some areas, they really struggle to even manage those herds because of private land issues, public land issues, migration corridors, all the things that, that we know as hunters at the general public doesn't really think about probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, an elk are, an elk are so adaptive. I mean, you can, you know, you can see them living at 10,000 feet almost all winter. And then, you, you know, I was, I was talking to some buddies that are, that are uh, shed hunting right now. And those bulls, the bulls this year, because of the way that our winter happened, they're, they were living at the tops of the peaks. They couldn't, they were snowed in, but they could live up there because of the wind slip, you know, the wind swept the slopes off. And you see elk living in the desert. You know, Guy and I went on a, uh, we had a really good friend draw a desert tag here in Wyoming that we're literally in sand dunes. <clears throat> There's elk in sand dunes. So they're, 
they're so adaptive. They're like cockroaches. I mean, they'll live anywhere and, <laughs> and, and they are huge cockroaches. So they consume a lot of resource. And so they got to be managed and managed. Well, um, you know, one of the ways that, that they tried to do it is with wolves. And of course that we, that's a whole nother level of, of, of a problem, uh, not necessarily on elk, but on, on other resources, but the, you know, that's one of the ways they tried to handle the overpopulation in Yellowstone and elk herd was put wolves in there and it worked maybe too good. <laughs> Pushed yeah. all the elk to the desert, but. And it's uh so you can talk about them being adaptive. So I live right on the edge of the Pennsylvania elk herd that's here. And right. <laughs> the people that live around there can't stand them because they eat all the shrubs. They eat every single thing in the yard. <laughs> you, you know, we have some, some of the biggest bulls in the world that are here and there you'll have a 400 inch bull that's eating shrubs. You know, you could be sitting on the porch and they're coming right up and it's, it's absolutely incredible to see, yeah. <laughs> but that, yeah, they, yeah, they, you know, t- to me, I live on the edge of it where they're not like in my backyard. So I think it's pretty cool to, to be able to, when I'm, when I'm whitetail hunting to hear bugles and seeing them and doing all that kind of stuff. But, uh, to the people that live there, it's a little, it's, they're kind of like pests, you know? <laughs> they're a they are a really cool um conservation story elk are actually you know in the in we so we hunt in southern colorado and my dad because he can remember this back in the 60s well actually it started i think in the 40s 50s and 60s they transferred elk from that yellowstone elk herd that, that uh, lives on the winter range there in jackson wyoming they transferred those elk all over the place, <clears throat> Montana, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico. I mean, they're all over the place. And God, that's where they got them for Pennsylvania, yep. Kentucky. You know, they're in in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Michigan. Yeah, they have elk everywhere. And it's a huge conservation story on how we can do it if we do it right. Um, of course, like I said, they're adaptive, so they'll live anywhere. But um it's a great story on if we do it and do it right, it can work. Yeah. It's, it was pretty cool. I had, I had interviewed the head elk biologist from Pennsylvania on the podcast before and listening to the whole background, the story and how they brought them in and how they're managing them now by hunting and, and just the, the way that it, it's, it's incredible to, to see. And even like how these biologists just how they know so much about them and are able to, you know, they know the most about those animals, you know, as far as how to manage that population, how to have them healthy. And it's, it is pretty incredible to, to be able to see it. Like you said, it's a conservation success story for sure. Yeah. I think they're to the point now where they have more States that have elk than don't really. I think it's, yeah, I think it's gotten to that, that level. Is it? Which is, is which is amazing because you go to the 40s back in the 30s and 40s they were only in like four states. Wow, you know, Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, Montana. So it's grown that much just in 50 years. That's that's incredible. I, I mean, I, they have them in Texas now, Oklahoma. You know, of course, the Tennessee, Dakotas, Nebraska. I think Missouri, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Missouri. Yep. Yeah, I I really wish I could draw one of those tags though. Here, that would be that would be really nice. I've been, <laughs> I've been putting, yeah. in, I've been my dad's been putting in from the first year. I don't think it's been like seventeen or eighteen years. He's got that many points, and I, I don't know. I got ten or eleven points, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's difficult. If you guys, do you guys put in for Pennsylvania? 
No. <laughs> not usually. Do not shoot a spike by two if you get that tag. No, I, I don't. I don't plan on it. <laughs> Set the bar just a little higher. Yeah. yeah. Even though I've only shot one bull elk so far, I'm, I'm going to try to set that bar a little bit higher for here. <laughs> you draw that Pennsylvania tag. You, you go home empty-handed if you have to. <laughs> yeah That's go a, buy a lottery ticket after you win it though. i know right or or if i had a lot more money i could uh i could bid on it and you know get the what are the, the governor's tag or whatever they call it but that that goes yeah. for over six figures so that's uh not not in my Jeez. playbook anytime soon <laughs> Jeez, that's a lot that's a lot per inch yeah yeah it it truly is but <laughs> um so i, I you know kind of looking at, you know, as you've been hunting for 30, 35 years, as you guys have been saying, how have you seen it kind of change as far as like hunting on public land and like what it, how, how that's changed over the years? If like, I don't know, I, I, I've been in it since there's, it seems like there's a, a ton of, ton of guys and girls out there, uh, hunting, but from talking to some other people, it seemed like, you know, even 20 years ago, it was a little bit less of that, but I, I want to hear kind of your guys's input on that. Ike, do you want to start? Go ahead, Ike. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, hunting, hunting has changed a lot in, in 35 years in the sense that our gear has changed a lot. You know, the accuracy of a rifle. I can't imagine if my grandfather was, it was alive today and, and, uh, we took him out on the range and, and I took my, you know, my rifle, uh, I won't do a shameless plug there, but my rifle and it shot 800 yards and pinged steel at 800 yards. He would, he would look at me and, and he'd go, he would ask, you don't hunt at that length, right? No, no, I don't, I don't kill anything at the length, but the, the rifle's accurate enough, maybe not velocity enough, but accurate enough. You can hit something. I think it would just, he would be dumbfounded. And then at, you know, that's just the rifle. And now you have boots that you can wear that are built specifically for hunting. You have clothing that you, that allow you to stay out there longer in worse conditions. You have tents and sleeping bags and, you know, backpacks that actually fit and don't kill you and aren't, they don't weigh 45 pounds. And all of this gear has allowed all of us, I think, to hunt more, uh, to be more passionate about it, stay out there longer. Um, the other thing that's changed a lot is is the management of these species. Each state does it differently, but you know there's a lot of these states that are doing a really really good job managing managing their herds. But because of that, because of this data that they have, you know, it has changed the tags and the number of tags. And I'll let Guy talk to the tags because he knows all the all the statistics of it but it, it was there's a few things that were mind-numbing this year on how many tags they had now versus 20 years ago and and you know how many hunters there were in really popular areas uh 20 years ago versus now you know i i was thinking about region g guy what was what was the statistic there it was a lot then versus now right here uh, 1991, I graduated high school in 1990. year after I graduated high school, it was 3,500 tags in that area. Last fall, they had 400. Wow. And so, what is a hunter number, like, as far as 
applicants or anything else like equivalent to that? Is it um, quite a bit more people now that would be applying or maybe, I don't know if yeah, draw there's that. more people applying for less tags. Back in 1991, it was a draw back then, but it was pretty much 100% and there was leftover tags. You know, at, at 30, now that's just non-resident tags. That's not residents. 3,500 non-residents for one region and down down yeah. to four 400 so that that is a drastic reduction um, in hunters but this you know the hunter success was about the same back then versus now um, and the herd know, isn't but, that much different no no but uh, they're getting but we were we did a thing called a migration. Uh, it's called Imperiled. It's a film on these mule deer that migrate, you know, two hundred miles one direction. And we're talk, guys talking about that area. We spent a lot of time with the biologists and it, on that project, and they've managed that herd really well. Uh, it, it, he they they came to the conclusion that hunting in that area isn't the problem. It's not. The hunting that's that's causing the big swings in population growth and decline it's all of the other factors it's the winners it's the urban sprawl it's you know these huge migration corridors that are getting cut off because you know some developer moves in and builds a bunch of cottage vrbo's around a lake in pinedale you know it's those factors that are making the huge the huge problems just one that that example I just gave, which actually happened or was going to happen, and then they bought the property and, and turned it over to the state, that would have killed 5,000 deer overnight, just like that. Would have killed, you know, more than 10%. It would have killed, what, 15% of the population in one winter. That's incredible. Yeah. So that's why that's why I say they're getting better at managing. You know, they're getting better at managing these herds to maintain those herd you know, the, the herd size and they're getting better at managing us as humans. So we aren't, aren't encroaching on them as bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, when you talk about elk, it's the opposite in Wyoming. When I graduated high school in 1990, we had about 62,000 elk in this state. Now we have almost over 120,000. They think. Wow. So our elk population has doubled in this state in the last 30 years but the problem is is the elk aren't where where they used to be exactly i mean they're still where they used to be but they have found new new country to live in and a lot of that country's down lower like ike was talking about in the desert yeah non i call it non-traditional elk habitats which come with a lot of conflicts montana is a perfect example of this what montana did is Montana used to have most of their elk population was in the big public land tracks of Western Montana, right? The big forest, the national forest, all that timber country. That's where the elk were. Well, when they put the wolves in, those elk went down, way down, and the elk started living in non-traditional habitat, Eastern Montana, Northern Montana. Well, guess what? That country's mostly private. So now you have a state, Montana, where over 70% of their elk are on private property year round. So now they have a lot of conflict up there because the public wants to hunt the elk. The landowners don't want the public to hunt the elk. They want outfitters and their you know, clients or friends or whatever to hunt the elk. So you have a, a public 
resource living on private property. And now we've got a big problem because the elk aren't where they should be anymore because of the predation, which is the public land tracks. So elk is kind of like money. They'll end up where they're treated friendly, right? And yeah. they're treated friendly by the landowners. You know, the game, the national, the federal government doesn't do a real good job of managing their, their land. They have too much of it, whether it's a BLM or the forest service, you know, they're doing the best they can with very limited resources, usually in a hostile political climate, because they've got everybody telling them what they should and shouldn't do. The, the private landowner, he's growing hay. I mean, same thing yeah. that's good for his cows or good for elk, right? And pretty soon, all of a sudden, he's got 500 elk living on this place year round, tearing up his fences and, and his habitat and his hay fields. So what does he do? He goes and gets an outfitter. The outfitter says, hey, I'll, we'll hunt those elk. I'll pay you $10,000 a year. Hey, that's great. That's money in my pocket. That's how that whole thing happened. And pretty soon you have a privatized elk herd with the public with nowhere to go. And that's kind of where Montana's kind of headed. And Wyoming's not as bad because our just our state's laid out different. But that's what will happen eventually when they, you know, when some of these things start to go awry and the management starts to slide sideways and the game and fish department, I feel bad for them because a lot of times they're stuck in the middle. Yeah. You know, they got the landowner mad at them because elk are tearing everything up. They got, they have to go get an outfitter. Then they got the public in town, their buddies mad at them because they can't hunt there anymore because they got an outfitter. They try to make some money off the elk that were tearing up their fences and hay fields, you know, so it's just, it's, it becomes a vicious circle. Yeah. No, that, that, I uh, I had heard about Montana being terrible with some of some of that, and it's it, it's funny because like I mean it's with any of those species. I mean even with whitetails out here, we notice it. Like if where I where I hunt is just a lot of big unbroken timber type country, but if you get anywhere near private land where they have any farms or anything, you can bet those deer are going to be hanging out there. <laughs> they got all the yeah. food they could ever want. They have the security of being on private land and not having people run around chasing them and everything. And, and I, I think they're, they're a little bit smarter than, uh, than some people give them credit. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're just like water. They go to the least resistance. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so with, with some of these changes, have you, have you noticed as far as your own personal, like hunting that it's changed or you've had to kind of, uh, change your strategy as far as trying to be productive? Um, I don't know. Is, is it kind of that evolved a little bit through the years too? Yeah, I think, I think the, the strategies, you know, the, here's what I would say. So let's take, we're talking about elk, let's take elk. My dad wrote an elk book almost 20 years ago, and I was flipping through it the other day trying to find uh, a section or a, a paragraph in there. And it occurred to me, all this information still, it still works because elk didn't change. Yeah. They didn't change what they do or where they hang, you know, where they, what they need to survive and how they react to certain things. And they didn't really change. But what has changed is where they're at and, you know, what, what 20 years ago when there wasn't wolves in there, they weren't so worried about predators. You know, not everything out there was out to eat them. Now they become the, the main food source for not just us, but for wolves and bears and every other predator, mountain lions, which is a big one, you know, down south. 
So they, they've changed a little bit that way. But I think what's really changed is the hunting. The hunters have changed. And maybe this is just me getting older and I've changed. And so, uh, you know, the older you get, the, the angrier you are. I don't know. Um, but I've seen the changes in, in guys being able to, like I said, go way further back, stay longer. You know, they kill an elk and they're willing to, to take that four-mile hike four times to get that bull out. That stuff didn't really happen when we were kids. You would, you knew somebody with horses or you didn't go back there because you didn't want, that wasn't something that we were geared up to be able to do. You know, you'd ruin the meat by the time you got it out. Yeah. Because you were wearing blue jeans and a pair of <laughs> Walmart boots and <laughs> a backpack that was war surplus from Korean War or some dumb thing. <laughs> so, so do you think like, uh, so even though, but since our gear has, has gotten better and people are starting to, you know, do more and go back further and do all that kind of stuff, but the, the success rates really haven't changed a whole lot. Is that, is that correct? No. Yeah. It, it, at least that's the statistics. Yeah. It doesn't show that they've that they're killing anymore. It's just guys are spending more time back there. Do you think that that just, they've just adapted to it and that's, that's why, yeah, they're just used to the, the predators now and they're maybe a little bit more skittish or however you want to put yeah, it. And I, I, we were, we were talking to the, the game biologist over in, in uh, Western Wyoming for, we were talking about mule deer and this guy has, and I kid you not, he pulled these out. He's huge three ring binders of photos of deer. And I think it was, what year did he start guy? It was, it was 27 years. So so he has a photo of every deer that comes out of that drainage because there's only one road in and one road out. So he just sits at the end of the road and, and he takes a photo of, of the buck and gets some measurements and stuff off the deer. And, and uh, you know, obviously ask the guys how the hunting was and, and stuff. And, we were flipping through those books and you can definitely see the ebbs and flows of the trophy quality, which he contributes 100% to the winter range quality, whatever's happening on the winter range as those bucks um, drop their antlers and start that new season. However, they come out of the rut and go into the winter and how that winter is, you know, how, how well, I guess, forged they are is is trophy quality and you can see slight ebbs and flows but it's nothing crazy i mean there's there's a couple years ago whoa that was a great year like i think it was 2018 maybe or no it was 2016 it was right before the bad winter it was unbelievable the trophies that came out of there but it wasn't like you know well here's a here's a crazy story out of all those years hundreds hundreds of deer maybe thousands i mean thousands of deer there was two bucks that weren't four point deer in all of those photos. And they were bucks shot by kids. You know, the dad's just, you know, the whole, yeah. you know, the fork bite, fork bite spike and all those deer because of, of, of their management and everything else is they're all good class mature deer for, and it's, so it's, it's changed, but I don't think it's changed as much. As we think it has. I think there's more people back there. I, I I would say that, but I don't know. What do you think, guy? I I think, and, and I've had biologists tell me this that one of when they when they started going to limited draw, limited quota areas, or limited quota hunts, like they started all that in the '90s, roughly. 
real serious. Most states, the biologists will tell you their complaint is it. it people when they did that, it people's expectations changed. When you could no longer just go down, buy a tag at the store, go up, have a good old time, shoot a buck, maybe not shoot a buck, and all of a sudden it takes ten points to draw that area. Those guys, if it takes 10 points, I want big bucks and I want lots of them and I better be able to kill one. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so with that, there's biologists will tell you the worst thing that ever happened was them having to, to manage for trophy quality because of the expectations of the public wanted bigger bucks, bigger bulls. If this takes you know 15 years to draw, it better be a darn good hunt. And so the game of fish has had to kind of departments have had to kind of manage for that but people's expectations have changed drastically in the last 30 years i mean i've gone back and looked at some of those old magazines issues of ours from the 80s and you can't believe i mean great bucks and and bulls and whatnot but the stuff that we publish now is so much larger than the stuff that was in those old issues now they had some flukes you go back in the 60s and 70s the real giants so the the top end was way higher than it is now but the average is lower you see what i'm I mean, yeah you know you're not the killing the, the 260s the 270 bucks very often anymore but they're killing a lot of 190s 180s some 200s where you know it, they didn't used to as much in the old days so it's kind of you know i think people's perceptions have changed on what the reality is on the size of some of these animals now. I mean, 400 inch bulls, that was really crazy stuff to even talk about 30 years ago. You know, that was once in a blue moon. There was only one or two states that could produce such a thing. Yeah. Arizona, maybe Nevada, maybe New Mexico. That was it. And now you got, you know, they kill 20, 30 of them a year. Heck, Montana killed 20 of them a year sometimes alone you know so so the quality is has actually gone up overall we're just not seeing the with with mule deer we're not seeing the megas we are with elk though the elk populations have gone up 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 and i think part of the mule deer struggling is some of a result of the elk being everywhere you know if you have elk living on a winter range that the deer have been, you know, expecting to use that winter range and the elk are living there all year, consuming that, that habitat, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So how are you to, to kind of go into the last thing I wanted to, to talk to you guys about here? It was the development of tag hub which is something that, that I've uh, been kind of diving into quite a bit this year. And I've been playing with a whole bunch of the different resources that are out there. And I've found Tag Hub to be very, it's a very useful tool as far as there's so much, depending on what you're looking for, you can find it there by using the different filters and the whole bunch. I've, I've really enjoyed using, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm trying to say there. And I kind of want to hear, um, you know, your guys' history on like how you came to it and, and just a little bit about it, I guess. Okay. Do you want to, you want to start off with the magazine? I'll let you start with how the whole MRS kind of transitioned and then talk about tag. Well, when we started, my dad started the MRS, we call, we call it the MRS members research section. 
you know, he, he had this idea that when the states started, like we talked about going to these limited draw areas, guys started getting preference points. They needed to know what area to apply for. Back then, you had to do it on paper and actually send it in with a, ch- a cashier's check. You couldn't just get on the internet like it is now. So guys really needed a lot of knowledge because they didn't want to accidentally apply for the wrong tag or once they got a lot of points, make a mistake or make sure they're in the best area they can or whatever. So he had this idea to put in the MRS section of the magazine. It would kind of go state by state and list just the top dozen areas, you know, the best 12 elk areas in Nevada. So guys in Pennsylvania or wherever could go, oh, yeah, I want to hunt that country around Ely. That's area 111, and, and they'd apply for that. And so that's kind of how that started. And then it got expanded as more and more states did draw. You know, when in 1996, I think, or 94, Colorado went from over-the-counter to a draw system for mule deer statewide. So, like, overnight, all these guys who come out from California or Pennsylvania, all these areas that they could just buy a tag and go hunting, they all of a sudden had to apply for it. You know, and so it, it changed the game completely. And so now then research became a huge component to Western hunting, Yeah, you know, more than ever before, of course. And so that just that tool was developed to help, you know, get that information out to guys. Uh, and, and as those processes grew state by state through the whole West, that section just grew. And pretty soon it just became a monster, you know, to where it's got half a million data points in it and it's just too much to print in the magazine because i got to put it on paper print it put it in a post office system and send it to you so it's very cost to you know costly so we can only put roughly 10 percent of the information in the mrs in the magazine you know it's just not enough room for it so yep. we thought what are we going to do with all this data because we're collecting it all anyway so then Ike and the team came up with the idea, let's put it in a digital format where we can house it all and you could sort it all. Even if you're not looking for the 15, 20 point unit, you're looking for what's the best elk unit I can go hunt for three points. Yep. Or how many points does a general elk tag in Wyoming take? Oh, I go look it up in there and then it'll tell you. So that's, that's kind of the background on it. Gotcha. And then, and then we took, and then we took, so we took all that data and put it in there and, you know, you can get a subscription for that. So you get all that. And we thought, well, you know, people are in there consuming this content. You know, we started getting guys going, I want to watch the TV shows. And so we put the TV shows in there and you can watch, you can actually, if you're a Tag Hub member, you can watch our TV show before it airs on the Outdoor Channel. If you're a Tag Hub member, you get, you get to watch the Beyond the Grids before we release them everywhere else. Um, we put all of all of uh, our book collection is in there, so you can you can uh, read all the books for free. Uh, you have you know we got we got a bunch of really cool sponsors uh, through the years with our TV show and everything else we're doing, and so they're giving discounts. I mean, you, get, you can get like a thousand bucks off of a off of an e bike. Um, you can get twenty, I think it's fifteen percent off of Everly Stocks. All their anything you order on EverlyStock.com. I mean, there's there's tons of that type of stuff. Then there's, you know, if you subscribe right now, actually, I'm going to do the shameless plug. If you subscribe right now, we worked a deal out with Yeti and Black Rifle Coffee. And so you get a, a cool Yeti mug and a and a bag of Black Rifle Coffee to try. Um, you know, there's just kind of, it's kind of a, if you're really serious about Western hunting, 
And you're going to do all the data work anyway, and you're going to consume the content anyway. It's just one place to go and to do all that um, so that it's it's easy for you. You can read the magazines there uh, digitally. Um, it's just one place. And uh, there's some cool stuff coming up. I can't tell you, but uh, we have some ideas on and some things that are in the works for Tag Hub that'll be really, really cool here in the next, hopefully before uh, before we get into we call MRS season, which usually starts in, in December. So, gotcha. And, and uh, so, I didn't know that you had like those additional deals and stuff on Tag Hub. I, I I've been using it. Well, it's it's been about a month since I've logged in. As I'm done with my personal application <laughs> <and> stuff, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I I re- I really like the the digital magazine on there. Was one of the things, and then also and. I don't have it pulled up in front of me to be able to, to look at it, but uh, where you can go through and filter it and you're looking at the map and it gives you the different color coding as far as, you know, kind of going, you can put in what you're looking for and it shows you the units that are available and that helped me pick the the mule deer unit that, that I'm applying for in Colorado this year, which hopefully I'll be drawn here shortly. But uh, <laughs> that's, and it's, it's a very... I don't know. I think it's a very easy tool to use, but and at the same time, there's so much data in there. And when you, if you geek out on data, you can, you can have a lot of fun in there as well. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty neat. And to watch, be able to use, cause all the historic data is in there too. So you'll be, you'll be you're able to look at trends and yeah. what's going, you know, what's going on in, in one specific unit or, or the units that you can, that you can draw this year or next year, what's, what's happening there. And yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. You can get lost there. I have. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 look up and it's I think two it's, hours. You're like, holy crap. Did <laughs> I get my kids? I think I left them a dance. <laughs> it's I, I think the I think it's a was a three year average. Is that what it goes by like for harvest success? Yeah. That was one of the things that I like looking at because if you just look at like last year it could be an anomaly, you know, versus you know, but if you pull it in a three year thing, you kinda can see, you know, what it's been like and it gives you a pretty good idea versus just looking at it for one year or anything else. And, and I don't know. The other thing, the other thing it's given us the ability to do is update the information. You know, one of the problems we had with the magazine is we'd print the information that we had at the time and you know, the lag time between when we sent it to the printer and it arrived at a door could be a month. And, you know, Nevada who's, notorious for giving us information late or changing the inf- they give us the information and then two weeks later come back and go oh yeah just kidding we, we changed all the the tag allocations well that's going to change all the draw odds great that's that's fantastic yeah. you know so if tag up we just go in there and flip a switch add the data and and it's always current and we send you notifications hey nevada changed this go check it out yeah so. cool well, thanks for giving me that or giving everybody, I guess, the information there and, and being able yeah. to put that online. It's easy to be able to access and, and to be able to use. And I don't know, I'm one of those guys that kind of geeks out and likes just looking at areas that I might not be able to hunt for 10 years, but just kind of just looking at trends and everything else. It's it's fun to be able to use and, and the, the digital magazine as well, just um, being able to go through and, and read that and read the stories and everything that comes along with it. It's uh, it's got It's got the information, it's got the entertainment and just about everything there. So, um, well, 
I appreciate you guys coming on and taking some time out of here. I know Ike, you're pretty tired after a <laughs> long day of travel yeah. here. Guy, the 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 younger one here is seems to be full of energy and ready to go. But <laughs> but no, I know how to conserve. <laughs> but seriously, guys, thank you very much for for coming on. Um, would you like to tell everyone where they can find uh, information on the stuff that you're putting out? I know we kind of sprinkled it through the episode here, but feel free to throw some yeah. shameless plugs out. <laughs> yeah, taghub.eastmans.com. Uh, and then, of course, you can find us on all the social media platforms. It's Eastman's Hunting Journals, uh, YouTube, same thing, um, Instagram, Facebook. You know, we, we're always, if you get on there, sign up for our e-news. We have a we send out once a week. We send out a really cool um, e-news that has usually has a hot topic like, you know, what's going on with grizzly bears or or you know, what's the political world with what we were talking about with Montana, you know, what's, what's going on with that up there and, and the landowners. And, and then we'll have, you know, a few art, an article in there and a gear review sometimes of, you know, some new gear that the newest, latest and greatest, I really stock back or the newest, latest and greatest bow that, that, you know, isn't even in the shelves yet. And we'll do a review on that. Um, optics, you know, you name it. And then uh, of course, that's also a great place to get informed of what's new, content wise is there a new beyond the grid coming out or is there a new podcast for our podcast um yeah so check it out eastmans.com is the best way place to start that and uh it'll pop up with uh, sign up for our e-news we, we don't send you a ton of junk um we try not to be those people not a ton uh, <laughs> not a ton i mean we do but not a ton <laughs> most of it most of it has Half something interesting weight. what's that Half a ton in digital weight. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's that's right. <laughs> so, um, so I guess we. I was talking to Scott uh, as we were as we were talking here, and and he said that there's a discount for Tag Hub for your listeners if they if they use uh, Bo B E U twenty um, B E A U B E A U. Well, yeah. Sorry, B E A U twenty. They get a they get a discount if they if they sign up for tag up. So make sure they use that. Perfect. Thank you. I appreciate it, guys. Cool. Thanks. Well, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.